Welcome back to episode two of the SPJ Podcast. We've got to think of a better name than that. Yeah, we'll work on that. I'm Rory. I'm Kayla. And I'm Lucas. Normally, we'll try to keep our show under half an hour, but today we've got a special extended episode for you. Thanks to the McCoy Center for Ethics and Society at Stanford, Sarah Sadlier and I got to sit down with Barney Frank this morning to talk about the current state of politics in America. But before we get to that, Kayla and I are going to give you guys your weekly update. That's right. Break out the chips, jerseys, and the most expensive commercials of the year, because Sunday was Super Bowl 50, and you know what that means. Oh, an epic defensive battle between the Panthers and the Broncos. Better. An epic controversy over one of the biggest halftime shows yet, featuring Bruno Mars, Beyonce, and Coldplay. But it wasn't a nip slip that had people talking this year. It was the performance of Beyonce's new single, Formation. video, released only a day before her big Super Bowl performance, made a strong racial statement and got a lot of people pretty upset. Right. Even Congressman Peter King, a representative out of New York, stated in a Facebook post, quote, Beyonce may be a gifted entertainer, but no one should really care what she thinks about any serious issue confronting our nation, end quote. Ouch. And that's not all. In Detroit, a police sergeant is currently under investigation after he compared Beyonce's performance to the KKK, saying, quote, So if the dance troupe at the top, referring to a picture of Beyonce's Super Bowl performance, is okay for this year's halftime show, then the one at the bottom, referring to a photo of the KKK, should be okay for our next year's, right? End quote. The sergeant currently remains on the job. Yeah, I mean, as if that was enough already, an unnamed online organizer is currently planning a demonstration outside NFL headquarters on Tuesday, claiming they do not want to see this kind of, quote, hate speech and racism, end quote, at the Super Bowl ever again. Well, between this and the all-white Oscars, I'm glad to see both sides are clearly focusing their attention on the biggest racial issues confronting America. Oh, man, Kayla. Well... In non-Beyonce-related news this week, last Saturday, the Republicans held yet another debate. What is it now? Their 100th? No, but honestly, it kind of feels that way. Ben Carson couldn't even decide if he wanted to come out for this one. (laughs) Yeah, and things got pretty ugly when Christy and Rubio faced off. Oh yeah? Who won? Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. Rubio and Christy were both losers this week. Rubio didn't end up doing as well in New Hampshire as he was expected to, and Chris Christie, for better or worse, won't be joining us in South Carolina. Yeah, but even with Christie out, New Hampshire's results, if anything, will only prolong the battle for the establishment between Kasich, Rubio, and Bush. Yeah, and as for the Democrats, the competition between Bernie and Hillary in New Hampshire was over almost as quickly as the Rose Bowl this year. Yeah, what? They called that for Bernie after, like, 6% was counted or something, right? (laughs) That's gotta be rough. Well, the punches kept coming last night as Hillary and Bernie went at it in another debate. Yep. For a good minute last night, Google searches for Henry Kissinger spiked across the country when Bernie Sanders basically said, Henry Kissinger can kiss my... Hold up there, Lucas. Let's just let Bernie speak for himself. Where the secretary and I have a very profound difference... In the last debate, and I believe in her book, very good book, by the way, in her book and in this last debate, she talked about getting the approval or the support or the mentoring of Henry Kissinger. Now, I find it rather amazing, because I happen to believe that Henry Kissinger was one of the most destructive secretaries of state in the modern history of this country. I am proud to say that Henry Kissinger is not my friend. I will not take advice from Henry Kissinger. And in fact, Kissinger's actions in Cambodia, when the United States bombed that country, overthrew Prince Sihanouk, created the instability for Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge to come in, who then butchered some three million innocent people, one of the worst genocides in the history of the world. So 
Count me in as somebody who will not be listening to Henry Kissinger. Well, I know journalists have asked who you do listen to on foreign policy, and we have yet to know who that is. Well, it ain't Henry Kissinger, that's that's for sure. That's fine. I mean, Bernie has got a good point about Kissinger. Then again, so does Hillary. Who even is advising him on foreign policy anyways? Really no one at this point. But he didn't vote for Iraq. LOL. Well, that's true, I guess. His one foreign policy credential. Our last story tonight is a follow-up on the renaming of campus property memorializing Junipero Serra. That's right. In a near-unanimous vote, the ASSU Senate passed a resolution to recommend to the administration to remove all mentions of Sarah's name on campus. The vote didn't really make any actual change, as it will ultimately be up to the administration to take action. Multiple Stanford publications have written on the issue, some supporting and others criticizing the efforts to remove the name. We will explore this issue more deeply next week. But for now, we are excited to share with you Barney Frank. Thank you for joining us, former congressman. You've spoken at events across the Stanford campus this week on various issues from foreign policy to partisan polarization. One of the things you mentioned at one of your talks was how the financial crash of 2008 has impacted Americans' attitudes towards government as an institution. Dissatisfaction with government has led to greater political participation by some groups, namely the Tea Party, and lower political participation by others, usually those on the far left. Now, however, this dissatisfaction seems to be manifesting in support for anti-government candidates like Trump, Cruz, and Sanders. What effect do you think these candidates and the movements that have coalesced around them will have on American politics, even if those candidates don't win? That's a very good summary, and it is one of the things I regret, that the the reaction of people on the right was to energize themselves politically, while too many on the left decided to demonstrate their unhappiness, but not to participate. Um, As to the current candidates, the first interesting thing is, uh, and it's, 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 uh, I think, frankly, kind of successful marketing on the part of Senator Sanders. He is by far the person in this race who is the most uh, experienced government official. Uh, He went from being a mayor to being a U.S. representative and a U.S. senator. He's been in Congress for 25 years, and I, I, I am impressed by his ability to act as if he has had no responsibility for anything that's happened in the last 25 years. I, it is not that he did not want change. I know he did. But my problem in part with him is that he gives people the impression that change is easy to accomplish than in fact is. He is somewhat critical. And if you listen to him, while well, he obviously is talking about uh, Hillary Clinton, Objectively, he's really quite critical of Barack Obama and his record, and he generally gives people the sense that more could have been done. Uh, And the fact is that that's not true, and he was there. Uh, So on things like uh, the Glass-Steagall Act or single-payer health care, he was there and voted for the alternatives to that, and while it is true he said he would have liked to go further, he wasn't able to. And I take that not as a sign of his lack of commitment, but that's how hard it is. Um, I differentiate him in that sense from Trump and Cruz, uh, Trump in particular. I mean, Cruz has at least a coherent, very right-wing approach. He, uh, he has this paradox because uh, to make sense out of Cruz, you have to assume that it's the government's fault that all the bad things happen because his response is to tear down the government. Um, uh, Donald Trump's just incoherent. There's no pattern uh, to what he says. He says, I'm going to make America great again without saying how. To the extent he gets specific, it is drivel. Uh, I'm going to make the Mexicans pay for the wall. I mean, it is uh, depressing to me that so many in the Republican Party do this. I think part of what you see with both Trump and Cruz is a, uh, the Republican Party regretting now the leadership and the uh, established figures that they whipped up such hatred against Obama because they now have a, uh, a beast out of control for them, uh, an electorate that's not being <clears throat> rational. On the other hand, I do think going forward, there's some benefit here for Democrats and liberals. I, uh, I have a column in Politico, which I wrote while I was here at Stanford, that will appear in the Politico magazine on the, what, 17th of, of uh, February. For a long time, 
when you raise the issue of the unfairness of the distribution of wealth in America, when you said that too much is going to a few and not enough to average people, a very effective political response was you're engaging in class warfare. Uh, Barack Obama ran into that. At one point he said, well, we want to do a little redistributing of income. And some of you may not remember, you're younger, but a wholly implausible figure named Joe the Plumber, except his name was not Joe and he was not a plumber, but that was how he got known, uh, fought back and Obama kind of retreated a little bit. Oh no, in America we don't worry about this, who gets which more. That's, that's European, that's, that's class warfare. The answer in America was, the answer to all that is simply to get more for everybody. There used to be a metaphor that people have stopped using because it's so patently untrue. The rising tide will lift all the boats, which was taken to mean that if you just have overall growth in the economy, everybody will be better off. And that was very potent. By the way, I, on the side, I advise people to be very leery of metaphors in politics, particularly in foreign policy, domino theories, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in fact, you know, the answer to the argument the rising tide will lift all boats is very simple. The economy is not a tide and people are not boats. And if in fact, you want to stick with the metaphor, if the tide is rising and you cannot afford a boat, you drown, you do not, you do not rise. But um, that argument used to be very powerful. It's now just, it's, it's died very suddenly. I wrote my column in the form of an obituary. The argument that you should not worry about how things are distributed, but should instead only focus on increasing the overall pie is not plausible anymore. But here's the problem. The Republicans, that goes necessarily uh, against what they propose, because the only way you adjust the shares, you don't stop trying to promote overall growth, but once you recognize the legitimacy of concern over the shares, you are inevitably talking about public policies. In a sense, what you're saying is, not in a sense, what you're saying in essence is, if you leave the free market entirely to its own, the country will get richer, but a few people will get all that and most people won't. So you need public policies, uh, the minimum wage increase, raising taxes on wealthier people. It has implications for the trade bill, which by now economists agree, increased international trade will increase the American economy overall, most agree, but in a way that's unfair to some and not others. People here in the Silicon Valley will make out very well because they are producing things that they can sell to the rest of the world. Although Mark Zuckerberg had just found that it wasn't quite as easy to sell to India as, uh, as he thought it should be. But uh, if you are in a more basic occupation, you're undercut by this. So I think going forward, I welcome the death of this argument that you should not be concerned about how fairly things are uh, divided. And I welcome it also because it's going to put the Republicans at a disadvantage. Every public policy that would address this problem of unequal distribution is one where the Democrats will be for it and the Republicans against it, and arguing, one, that the distribution is really unfair, and two, that we should not do anything about it, will be hard for them to win with. Thank you for that response. Um, in your recently published autobiography, Frank, you reiterated a point about being able to put aside important goals in order to achieve what you call partial victories. You describe this as difficult for those who are emotionally driven behind certain issues. This week, prominent thought leaders on race in America have come out for and against both candidates in the Democratic race. Charles Blow of the New York Times wrote about how black voters might come to expect disappointment no matter who is elected. What would you say to someone who doesn't believe, say, in a general election, that there will be a candidate that will make real change on the issues that they care about? Well, I would hope Charles Blow was not saying neither one would make real change. It's one thing to say people will be disappointed because there will not be enough change. But people who say there will be no real change could not be more wrong. Let me give you an example. Had we not had Supreme Court justices appointed by Republican presidents as a result of elections, the Voting Rights Act would not have been diminished. I doubt that Charles Blow would say that it is unimportant that voter suppression measures uh, are now unchallengeable. I really deeply regret this tendency of people who, who over-argue the case because it's, it's self-defeating. Uh, if you tell people that no matter what happens in the election, it won't make any change, then you discourage voting. and. 
in your original question made the point. The right tends to vote in higher percentages than the left. And so I, I do not understand why anybody would say that. Um, let me leave aside race. People say, well, you're white. What do you know about it? I'm gay. Uh, I write in my book about the trajectory of public attitudes towards those of us who are LGB and now T, because the transgender issue was a later one. And there is no question there has been an enormous difference. Anyone who says there's no difference is just talking nonsense. Now, of course, there are things still to be done. Yes, there are people in parts of America unprotected by job discrimination. But, you know, there's a saying that I've always thought was very uh, dangerous, even though it sounded good and made people feel better. No one is free until everyone is free. Well, if you believe that, no one will ever be free because you are not in one fell swoop going to free everybody in the world and you can make things better. So um, as to uh, the notion that nothing that comes out of this election will help black people, it is nonsensical. Uh, things can be better or worse. And I do believe that uh, either a Democrat will be better than any of the Republicans in this regard. By the way, there is an intersection of race and class in America. Let me go back to what I said before. If you raise the minimum wage, you will be helping African-American and Hispanic people more than white people. That's not the motivation to do it. But to the extent that you address economic disparities, they have been tied up with race. But even beyond that, it will almost certainly, the next president will almost certainly be able to alter the balance in the Supreme Court. It's five to four. Four of them, by the end of a second term for this president, will be in their late 80s. Uh, all of them, four of them will be in their 80s by the first term. Two are on the more conservative side. Well, one's consistently on the conservative side, Scalia. Uh, it, it actually honors him to say conservative. The man is a mean-spirited bigot. Um, Kennedy is more often than not on the conservative side, two on the liberal side, Greensburg and, and Breyer. I can't imagine he thinks it doesn't make any difference uh, who would replace Breyer, Ginsburg, Scalia, or Kennedy, or some combination uh, thereof, or that we would do things economically. Um, or that, as Democrats would like to do, we would act to uh, protect people's right to vote in states that are adopting voter discrimination. I, I, I have very little patience with this kind of attitudinizing. Uh, and in fact, in this, and I go back to Bernie Sanders, this is a very complicated country. It's a very big country. And we have a constitution that works against quick change. You know, in England, if you win the election for the House of Commons, two days later, you're in control. In America, we have people now serving who got elected to the Senate in 2010 and in 2012 and a president elected in 2012. Because of what we call the separation of powers and the overlapping election cycles, it takes two elections in a row to win something. So, um, uh, of course, you don't all do it right away. Uh, but again, yes, will some people be disappointed? And that's to be the last point. It's one thing to think you could have gotten more. But you shouldn't set your people up for disappointment. You shouldn't over-argue. And uh, people who tell me that Barack Obama wasn't able to produce some policies that were better for African Americans and Hispanics are dead wrong. Yeah, and to be clear, Charles Blow did not advocate non-participation, only against the candidates, like you said, making lofty promises that are going to lead to disappointment. Oh, well, then I apologize. You say yes. this, in that case, I, I would say he's. I very much agree with him. Uh, in fact, by the way, I think that over... Barack Obama did overpromise. I think Barack Obama's actual record is fine. I think there were he overpromised. I think he underestimated the degree of hyper partisanship on the part of the Republicans. The one thing he said in 2008 that troubled me, I was originally for Hillary Clinton, but when she was the nominee, I worked very hard for him. But he said that he was going to govern in a post-partisan fashion. And I knew that wouldn't be possible because the Republicans' attitudes had so hardened. And I was afraid he would taken advantage of by them. I think he learned pretty soon that that wasn't possible. And uh, what I uh, I said at the time that when he said he would govern in a post-partisan manner, uh, I got post-partisan depression. <laughs> well, you mentioned the minimum wage in your last response, and that's one of the core platforms of Bernie Sanders' campaign. In Frank, you wrote that in the 1990s, you believed Bill Clinton to be the most liberal electable president. Now that you've retired, you've become a columnist for Politico, and one of your most read columns is titled, Why Progressives Shouldn't Support Bernie Sanders. That column mostly focuses on electability grounds. You don't think a self-proclaimed socialist would be electable. 
so you support Hillary Clinton. However, while many Democrats might agree with you on that, when it comes to regulations on the financial sector, many believe Bernie Sanders to actually be tougher on Wall Street. Do you agree with the latter part of that statement, that Bernie would be tougher on Wall Street, because you've been reported to have advised Clinton's campaign when it comes to her stances on the financial industry? Several points. First of all, I do differ when you said raising the minimum wage is a big part of Bernie Sanders' campaign. That suggests that he's got sort of a monopoly on that. It's equally a part of Hillary Clinton's campaign. It's equally a part of what Barack Obama is trying to do. Um, in fact, the last time the minimum wage was raised was under the presidency of Bill Clinton. So, no, there was no Sanders edge on raising the minimum wage, except that electability is the issue, because if, if you do not have a Democratic president, you won't get the minimum uh, wage raised. Secondly, as to Sanders and uh, uh, financial reform, Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State during the passage of the Financial Reform Bill. Bernie Sanders was a fairly senior United States Senator. What did he do to toughen things? And this goes back to my original point. If uh, I don't agree with him in substance, but why was he so unable to make any difference? Let me go back here. I urge people who have now the great advantage of the internet, and you can go back and look at things. I, I urge people to go back and look at the debates that were happening in 2009 and 2010. Check the congressional record of the Senate. Does anybody here remember Bernie Sanders as an outspoken critic that we hadn't gone far enough and doing more? Uh, and I say that not to impugn his integrity, but to say that it's harder than he thinks. Secondly, I think he's wrong. Um, and he's not just criticizing Hillary Clinton here, by the way, he's criticizing Barack Obama. Uh, and everybody else who helped draft the financial reform. Um, there's one difference. You say tougher. In fact, she is advocating more specific restrictions on the banks. Here's the difference. Sanders takes what I think is a very simplistic view of this. He says the answer, all he's put forward, is to take the largest banks and break them in two parts. They wouldn't be two equal parts. I say that because if you think the banks are too big, adopting the Glass-Steagall law, which says banks cannot both be commercial banks and investment houses, you would then take J.P. Morgan Chase or Citicorp or Bank America and bring them into two pieces, one of which would be much larger than the other. You know what you would have? Banks that were still very big. I mean, he, he does not, he says, I want to break up the banks. He hasn't said how much. And Glass-Steagall itself simply divides them that way. Secondly, Nothing in Glass-Steagall prevented bad things from happening. Glass-Steagall was not repealed until 1999. By the way, I voted against it, the repeal. I voted against the repeal because I thought it was time to replace that with newer regulations, uh, not simply to keep it there. If people have seen the big short in which there was this problem with bad mortgages and derivatives, that set of practices began under Glass-Steagall. And nothing in Glass-Steagall stopped people from giving bad mortgages. Nothing in Glass-Steagall stopped people from selling these securities. All it would have done would have said a separate entity had to do it. In fact, the two entities that got in the most trouble that caused the crisis and originally, Lehman Brothers and AIG, weren't under the ambit of Glass-Steagall. They were already separated. What Hillary Clinton is doing, she's being advised, some by me, but more importantly by a man named Gary Gensler, who was the chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, an obscure agency that does derivatives, and who's one of the two toughest regulators we ever had. In fact, he got in some trouble with the Obama administration in a couple of cases because he wanted to be tougher than they wanted to be. And what she's talking about are things that actually restrict the practices of these institutions, simply saying we want them to be done in two separate places, and in no other way restricting the actual activity doesn't do very much. Uh, so the passage of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act was signed into law in 2010. Critics on the left, including Bernie Sanders, argue that Dodd-Frank didn't impose sufficient regulation on banks to prevent future bailouts and corruption on Wall Street. Uh, in last night's debate, Sanders even said Dodd-Frank doesn't go anywhere near far enough. Meanwhile, critics on the right contend that it was too restrictive and harsh. If you could alter Dodd-Frank now, would you? Given the benefit of hindsight, is there anything that you would have changed when you were developing the bill six years ago, or was it the best that could be done under well, the circumstances? Well, first of all, Senator Sanders was in the United States Senate when we passed the bill. 
I challenge people to go back and find him saying then what he said today. I know he is supposed to be the exemplar of integrity and honesty, but I think, uh, uh, you know, all politicians are influenced by trying to win votes and change things. And I again ask people to say, compare what he said then when he was voting for the bill and not proposing many members. I know he's for Guy Siegel, but he was not otherwise there. Uh, secondly, I am not aware of any specifics where he wants to go further. And I'll tell you this, I disagree, and I don't think we should speak in an extreme fashion when he says the business model of the financial industry is theft. That is wrong. There are many, many people, you know, it's a kind of a McCarthyism to smear everybody that way. And lending money for good business purposes is important. There have been abuses and we have to go after them. As to the bill, there was uh, one thing I would have done. I would have insisted that any loan that's made and is then sold into the market, that the person who is packaging and selling it has to retain 5% of the risk, directly relevant to what was talked about in the big short. Unfortunately, the law had to be weakened to get a 60 votes in the Senate, and it made that optional with the regulators who did not take it on. So I would have uh, preferred to do that. Other than that, what we have done is given great power to the regulators so that while we do not automatically say every bank must be cut, not in half, by the way, <clears throat> it would maybe be 80-20 or 65-35 you still have these very large remaining institutions. As Hillary Clinton has pointed out, there is power for the regulators to say, you're too complex and you're getting in trouble, you must spin this off or that off. Um, Stephen Eisman, who was one of the heroes of the... Uh, Big Short wrote an article in Sunday's New York Times that said, no, this bill is working very well. Uh, and I haven't seen, I don't know what his specific criticisms are when he says it didn't go far enough. Um, there is more power uh, to do things. And I again would repeat, I think you would find Bernie Sanders saying very different things when he was running, now that he's running for president, than he said when he was a senator voting for the bill. And I again say, well, let me put it this way. It is true, you can describe someone as being not a true progressive because that person doesn't want to institute Glass-Steagall but prefers our way of, of regulating, decided that trying to get single payer was, was undoable so instead you go the way of the Affordable Care Act, accepts money from financial institutions and campaigns and has a super PAC. If that's your criteria then Barack Obama is not a progressive because almost every criticism Bernie Sanders levels at Hillary Clinton, the exception of voting for the war in Iraq, fully applies to Barack Obama. And that's one of the reasons so many Democrats are skeptical about it. I will tell you, I talked to among the most liberal members of the House and Senate. None of them are so, two out of all of them are for Bernie Sanders. And part of the distress people had is that if you listen to him, Barack Obama didn't accomplish very much. If you dust off the financial reform bill, it's not meaning much and you denigrate the Affordable Care Act, that makes it a little harder to defend uh, the record Democrats take into this election. You also mentioned Hillary Clinton's vote on the war in Iraq. Yeah. Do you think that given that voting record, that's something voters should be concerned about, given that Bernie didn't actually vote for the war If it was in Iraq? a pattern, yes, I voted against the war in Iraq. But you said voting record, that's one vote. Um, there was this view in America, which fortunately is over, which was that if you're going to be a Democratic candidate for president, you had to look like you were tough on national security. Um, some of the most liberal members of Congress voted for that. Again, I voted against it, so I'm not justifying that vote. Um, Joe Biden voted for it. Uh, John Kerry voted for it. You would be very hard-pressed to find somebody who didn't vote for it. Uh, if that was part of a pattern of always voting for war, it would be one thing. But it isn't. And uh, I regret that people felt they had to do that. Look, anybody at the time who was thinking of running for president felt pressured to vote for that because of the pressure. They were wrong, but it is not, in my judgment, indicative of a, of a fundamental uh, difference. In your response to her previous question, you spoke of the difficulty of working with the Republican House for President Obama. But you served in Congress during the Reagan administration when gridlock didn't really pose the same problem that it poses today. Party members reached across the aisle and Congress worked with the president. Your former colleague Tom Allen wrote a book called Dangerous Convictions. 
In it, he details how the problem of gridlock in Congress today is not so much caused by the individual members of Congress's orientations as it is a problem caused by the attitudes and behavior of the American public. By either not voting or voting for candidates based on ideological purity and consistency, voters reinforce the polarization that they see in Congress. You seem to agree with him on that premise. That said, do you think there's a future for bipartisanship with the Paul Ryan House and a potential Clinton presidency? Both figures who, although in different parties, have disavowed ideological purity over action. First of all, I want to pay tribute to my former colleague Tom Allen, who was not only a very good member of Congress, but as the then member of Congress for Southern Maine, by inviting me to do a fundraiser in Maine in 2005 on behalf of a, uh, an effort to sustain a gay rights bill that was being challenged in a referendum, was a direct cause of meeting the man who is now my husband. Uh, I met Jim at this fundraiser, so I, I thank Tom again, as I have done before. You know, they say no good deed goes unpunished, but this, if it were a good deed by me, was in fact rewarded. Secondly, he's right, it's the voters. Um, and, and here's the situation. By the way, I would say this, and you're right about the Reagan thing. You could carry that record of cooperation across party lines much further. It stopped in 2008. If you read the books written by the Bush administration top economic officials, Secretary of the Treasury Henry Paulson, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke, you, they are full of praise, frankly, for me in part and others. The Democrats in 2008 helped save the economy because Bush yes it to. Ironically, many Republicans have since been attacking the Democrats for working to do the things that the Bush administration has said. This, this clanking down and ending of cooperation starts when Obama becomes president. And Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, says our number one goal is to pock him. And it's because the Republican Party moved very much to the right. And Tom Allen is right. You have to start with the voters. Why do we have gridlock? Let me ask you, would this be rational? Would it be rational for you to have voted for Barack Obama in 2008, and then in 2010 to have voted to give control of the House to people who hated him, and then vote to reelect him in 2012, but then in 2014 give control of both houses to someone who hated him? Now, if any individual did that, you would say, boy, that's pretty stupid. You know who did that? The voters. I've just described to you the electoral outcomes. So the voters as a whole voted for Obama in 8 and 12, and for people who didn't want him to do anything in 10 and 14. Surprise, surprise, we have good luck. Now here is the problem. <clears throat> in the past, as you're correct, you'll be implied in your question, we still could have worked it out. The Democrats, somebody said, well, you know, both parties have moved, true. The Democrats have moved to the left. I've been part of that. Republicans to the right. But here's the difference. It is not simply the ideology you have but the extent to which you are willing to hold everything hostage until you get your way. Where the Republicans have caused this problem is not by moving to the right, but by refusing to have any idea of compromise. And it's probably because many of them don't believe government does anything useful. So if the government is disabled, they're happy with that. Democrats have a different view. But that really begins in 2009. It is fueled, but again, it's the public anger. It is fueled by deep public anger at the way in which we responded to the financial crisis. Bernie Sanders is playing on that, so is Donald Trump. Um, again, the frustration for the Democrats is that we inherited this problem from the Republicans. We helped them put out the fire and then tried to uh, restrain it, and people are, uh, are angry at us. Um, so you've stated on numerous occasions that Congress should increase its spending on social services by substantially reducing the military and ending the war on drugs. One of your proposed solutions for the latter cause is legalizing illegal substances that do not cause people to misbehave, uh, thereby diminishing the incarcerated population. As early as 1972, you filed legislation to legalize marijuana. Forty years later, it is legalized in Colorado and Washington State. Do you think that it will be legalized nationally in the near future, and what are the roadblocks ahead? I think it is moving ahead. I haven't got 40 more years myself to wait, but I think these things sometimes happen, and I may be misusing the phrase because I'm not a great mathematician, but algorithmically. Um, in fact, the answer is yes. I believe within five years <clears throat> it will be legal to smoke marijuana in much of the country. I said 10 years, 
But I have a colleague, I started working with my libertarian colleague, Ron Paul, who was one of the few honest libertarians. A lot of people claim they're libertarians and they mean that there should be no minimum wage and no occupational safety and health regulations, but that people shouldn't have sex if they don't want them to or read things they don't want them to. Uh, Ron Paul was a genuine libertarian. He believed in, in freedom. I disagree with him on the economic side. But um, the man who's taken that over, Earl Blumenau, a very thoughtful and able member of Congress from Portland, Oregon, I attended a, an event at his organization in Portland, Oregon on Sunday, and it was from the Cannabis Industry Association, hundreds of people from over the country. They are making very real progress. He said five years. Nationally, I don't think you're going to see it totally legalized, but at the very least, the federal government can reclassify marijuana. Uh, there are different levels of substance. It's overclassified now. Um, secondly, what we want from the federal government is, okay, you don't let the states do what they want. And uh, I think we are moving in that direction. More and more states are doing it. And let me give you, if we have time, an analogy here, <clears throat> or, or why I think this is going to work. What's happening with marijuana and the progress towards it being legal <clears throat> is the same thing, the same process we saw with regard to same-sex marriage. Here's the situation. You have an activity that some people want to do. Some men and women want to marry someone of the same sex. Some people want to smoke marijuana. There is some overlap on that, but they are separate uh, issues. Other people do not want people to do that. And they don't want to do people to do that primarily because they have moral objections to it. Women having sex with women is icky, although, let's be clear, a lot of men may be opposed to that in principle. There are heterosexual men who find the idea of women having sex with women titillating. They are appalled by the idea of men having sex with men when they throw out the whole, whole ball of wax. But they don't want other people to do it. But in America, you generally can't win an argument by saying, I don't want you to do that. I, I, I don't like it, so you shouldn't be able to do it. So in both the cases of smoking marijuana and marrying someone of the same sex, the opponents come up with negative social consequences. They say, if you smoke marijuana, it will be bad for everybody else. If two men can marry, that will be bad for other people. Both statements are patently untrue. There is simply no negative there in, in, in an academy. It's what economists call externalities, things that happen to other people. There are no externalities of the negative sort for people smoking marijuana or same-sex marriage. <clears throat> but we're in a vicious cycle. <clears throat> Status quo always has a lot of inertia behind it. As long as people think that smoking marijuana or having same-sex marriage will have negative consequences, we can't get the votes to make it legal. But until we can make it legal in at least some places, we cannot disprove the argument that there are negative consequences. So it's a vicious cycle. People think it's bad, so we can't get it. And because we can't get it, we can't prove that it's not bad. And then in both cases, there's a breakthrough. In Massachusetts, by the leadership of a wonderful person, Chief Justice Margaret Marshall of our Supreme Court, and her three colleagues, and they say, we can have same-sex marriage in Massachusetts. And what happens is we then get same-sex marriage in Massachusetts. Despite the efforts of the governor of Massachusetts to wipe it out, because you have a man who's the governor of Massachusetts who thinks this will be his ticket to the presidency, being the one who snuffed out same-sex marriage, his name was Mitt Romney. And instead, we are able to protect it. <clears throat> so you now have a situation where we actually have same-sex marriage, and none of the negative consequences materialize. And another state or two does it. And at first, we lose some votes. But by 2010, it is undeniable that same-sex marriage in seven or eight states has no ne negative consequences. And then we're on a roll, so that in 2012, four states vote on it, and all, we win in all four states. Majorities are now for it. Um, the president decides not to challenge the Defensive Marriage Act. That's a popular decision in the country. Again, what happens is, once you get a breakthrough and can have people see it in effect and see that there are no negative consequences, it goes forward. Similarly with marijuana. What happens first with marijuana is you get medical marijuana allowed in a couple of states. And the opponents made a mistake strategically. <clears throat> Their argument was, oh, this medical marijuana that's a foamy. You say it's only for people who have medical conditions. 
but in fact almost anybody can get it and people have these fake medical conditions and I have been, I was asked at the time because I was for medical marijuana, how do you respond to the argument that a lot of people when there's medical marijuana get marijuana anyway? And my response was, yeah, good. Because what it meant was they were in fact conceding that medical marijuana was the de facto legalization of marijuana in general and where were the negative consequences? Just as with same-sex marriage, we got a few cases where people got to ingest marijuana and there were no negatives. And then came Colorado and Washington and no, there were not children dying from marijuana-laden candy bars and there were not uh, emergency room admissions of people who had been freaked out and there were not accidents on the highway <clears throat> and that's why we're going to win it. In both cases, the experience with the legalization of marijuana in an increasing number of parts of America has been wholly benign. And then you get the conservatives joining in because you get the money saving. And the final one, and this goes back to what we talked about before, it's very relevant now that we're worried about police mistreatment based on race of African Americans, particularly to some of Hispanics. Racism in America has been substantially rolled back. It is at its worst in practice in the administration of justice and in particular in the enforcement of laws that the society isn't serious about. People do not, I think, discriminatorily apply the murder statutes or the armed robbery statutes. They do discriminatorily apply <clears throat> the laws against drug use. And repealing the laws that criminalize drug use, not just marijuana, because the argument applies to cocaine and heroin, and I appreciate you correctly stated my view, we should not make a drug, a substance illegal unless ingesting it makes you likely to hurt other people. Unfortunately, the substance that is that causes the most damage, it's too late, that's alcohol. Uh, without question, it is people who drink too much who do more damage to others. But it just didn't work in a free society to, uh, to ban it. And uh, uh, that's why I think you're going to see, now, you won't see a Supreme Court decision because you, it, it, it won't be possible to argue that you have the right to smoke marijuana, the right to same-sex marriage for one basic difference. In the marriage case, you can make what we call an equal protection argument. One group of people was not getting the rights of others. With marijuana, nobody has the right. That is, there are people who are clearly, we understand now, for some reason, because of their birth, they, they, they want to have sex with people of the same sex instead of others. There is no definable class of people who want to smoke marijuana and, and not others. So you're not going to get a Supreme Court decision in favor, but you're going to get increasing political support for it. So you just mentioned that you've recommended that we legalize heroin and cocaine, widely <laughs> considered to be more dangerous drugs than marijuana, or at least have more of an impact on the human body, um, as they've done in Portugal and Ireland and actually benefited from. Uh, so what are the prospects of this legislation being accomplished in the next 5, 10, 40 years, and what other solutions do you By the see? way, you have just helped me explain to some people why I was able politically to survive this position. You mentioned Portugal and Ireland. If you uh, counted people of Portuguese and Irish descent, you'd get about 80% of my district. So that's why I, <laughs> I represented more Portuguese Americans than anybody. And in fact, more people of Portuguese origin than anybody in Portugal, because our districts are bigger. Southeastern Massachusetts, Fall River, New Bedford, uh, City of Taunton, uh, are heavily populated by people who came to America from the Azores, the Portuguese islands, uh, a thousand miles west of, of, uh, of Portugal. And um, two things, I want to be clear, there is nothing dangerous about heroin and cocaine inherently. It is true that heroin in particular has led to violence, but people do not assault or rob other people because they have taken heroin. They do it because they want the money to be able to take heroin. So, by the way, it would also be if we were to make legal cocaine and heroin, we would do a great deal to improve the stability and security of people in Latin America. A major, and the Mexicans legitimately complain that we object because Americans buy that stuff and then we object to their meeting a demand from America. I'd say that's maybe 10 or 15 years off. On the other hand, this recognition that it A, isn't working, and B, that it costs a lot of money, and, and even more with heroin and cocaine because there was a higher rate of, of imprisonment. And for a while, people said, okay, well, we have to lock these people up, but we'll do it cheaper. And one argument was, we'll contract it out to private prisons. And that's been 
a, a disaster in some places, it saved no money. And, and people ought to be uh, clear. There is no way to imprison people more cheaply because there is inherent poverty. I've had people say to me, why does it cost more to send people to prison than to send them to the state university? The answer is very simple. People don't try to escape from the state university. Confining people against their will is a lot more expensive than offering them any service uh, whatsoever. So I think we will get there, but it's, it's a longer time than marijuana. On the other hand, the, the prohibitionists here have done us a favor because they are the ones who have said there's a linkage, marijuana, cocaine, and heroin. It really isn't much of a physical one. We've created one. But precisely because they've argued that uh, you know marijuana is just the first step, etc., having successfully legalized with no negative consequences marijuana, by their own arguments, we're on the way to doing it for cocaine and heroin. What other solutions do you see to the war on drugs, and are they more or less politically feasible than legalizing certain substances? Oh, the, there's only just one solution, and that is uh, make them legal. Well, I take it back. And use some of the money that you're going to save, and some of the money you're going to make by selling this stuff to have treatment. It is in society's interest to have universal treatment available for those things. By the way, that will still leave you with a serious substance abuse problem, I understand it. It is people taking legal drugs, opioids, prescription drugs, um, and again, I think the method is to try and have treatment available. Thank you. Uh, so what do you see as the future you currently envision for yourself now that you've retired from being in Congress? Do you, and if so, in what capacities do you plan to continue public service in the next decade? I'm not going to go to work for anybody. Um, uh, what is this today, February? I'll be 76 in a month and a half. Um, on any given day, I think I function fine, but I don't have the stamina I used to have. And in fact, I, I, I think it's a strong argument. You know, people are different, but uh, I've seen too many members of public office long after they should be there in terms of their mental acuity and even their energy level. <clears throat> I have now what is a very happy situation for me. I, uh, <clears throat> I wrote a book, and I, we may try to write another book about how we should reduce military expenditures. Um, I write an article every two weeks for Politico, which has a good, serious readership. I just wrote one while I was here at Stanford. Um, with the help of a very able young man, let me give Ben by, I thank Ben, because I am very inept with machinery, and I kept glitching my computer, and poor Ben would come up and fix it. And I have to say, at one point, I asked him to come up to the office, and he looked at the screen and he said, I have never seen this before. I apparently invented a glitch he had never known, so maybe I've added to his resume uh, and the ability to fix things, but he was a very, very reliable source. So I write that column once every two weeks. Once a week, I uh, debate a conservative, a very amiable, civilized conservative named Larry Kudlow on CNBC's show, um, Closing Bell. And then I, I give speeches for money. I do some speech appearances for political groups. Uh, <clears throat> I combined this trip at Stanford. I did a fundraiser for Congressman Blumenauer last Sunday, for Congresswoman Barbara Lee from Oakland on Monday, and I'll be doing some this evening for Congressman Mike Honda, who's a very good guy here in the San Jose area. And uh, I've got this new thing. This is the, like, the fourth time I've done it. And I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, it began, uh, I was invited to spend a week at Berkeley. And I did that, and I get paid for it. And I get paid much more than I would have gotten paid as a member of Congress. And then I did one at the University of North Carolina, and then late last year at Princeton, and now I'm doing this. But I also make speeches for money, and let me say I want to address something. Um, I have spoken to Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America, and they have paid me to speak. And the notion that I have somehow compromised my integrity is McCarthyism at the worst. And I know this is true of Hillary Clinton, and I did say to Hillary Clinton when I saw her in Iowa that I was troubled by her speaking fees because they were so much larger than mine, but that's because she had been the Secretary of State. Let me tell you what's involved here. Nobody's trying to buy influence. You have people who come to these conferences, there are hundreds maybe a thousand of these people. So that's a lot of money. We say, oh, they gave you so much money. Yeah, but it's maybe 10 bucks for everybody who came to the conference. And they want to hear those of us who have been involved in important government decisions because we're interesting, frankly. 
I know a lot about what happened in passing a bill. Hillary Clinton knows a lot. These are people who are very knowledgeable and they like being able to go, and the speeches are off the record, you know why? Because they like to be able to go to their friends and say, you know what I heard that you probably don't know? And we are, we are entertaining and instructing them. And they give us the money because that's an advantage. People will come to conferences who might not otherwise do it. And it is just the worst kind of McCarthyism to suggest that somehow they're doing that uh, uh, to, to, to buy influence. Well, since you mentioned the presidential election, you once said about the Democratic and Republican parties, we're not perfect, but they're nuts. Correct. Uh, in light of the current front runners, I have it on my cards, a bumper sticker. <laughs> were you being too kind? Well, I, they have gotten nuttier. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, it now looks like it'll be either be Trump or Cruz. That is, uh, that is unimaginable. But I say this, and I'm optimistic, and I, I do not think Bernie Sanders can win, and I think it'll be Hillary Clinton, and if it's not she, if something unforeseen happened to her, you'd see Joe Biden, who's a very able guy. Uh, I mean, I, and again, people just, I, you want to know how I am sure Sanders can't win? Yeah. He was recently the subject of a very favorable profile on Fox News. Fox News is working very hard for Bernie Sanders. In fact, uh, USA Today had a wonderful cartoon. It was a donkey, the Democratic symbol, wearing a cruise button, and a, an elephant, the Republican symbol, wearing a Sanders button. But I think what will happen is this. If it is anybody other than Bernie Sanders, if it's a little more mainstream liberal Democrat, and if Sanders, it's unpredictable, I'll get to that, versus Trump or Cruz, we will win so big, and there will be such damage to Republicans, not just for president, but representatives and senators and governors, they will be so troubled by this that they will have no option but to fight back against the right wing. A lot of the mainstream conservative Republicans, Bob Dole, I guarantee you Mitt Romney's not happy with this, John McCain, but they, they're reluctant to get into it with these Tea Party people. They fight hard, not dirty, but hard, and politicians tend to be risk averse, but if the Republicans are decimated in November because of their right-wing swing. Their backs are against the wall and they have to fight. Two analogies in the history. When Barry Goldwater was a Republican nominee in 1964, the, the most militants got what they wanted, and it was another disaster. And in 1972, when George McGovern was our nominee, it was just as bad. The two mainstream presidential candidates since the Depression in 1932, who got the smallest percentage of the two-party vote were Barry Goldwater on the right and George McGovern on the left. And it's true that you can get a lot of energy for people, but the American people, and I don't think he's any of are now are ready to go quite there, but um, I think what you're going to see is a, uh, a resurgence of responsibility of the Republican Party going forward. Everything yeah. On behalf of the Stanford Political Journal, we thank you for this enlightening discussion. Thanks for listening. Join us again next Friday for your weekly dose of politics, news, and insightful commentary.